Before we get started, make sure you've watched every episode in season four before you start listening to these podcasts if you want to avoid spoilers. We do talk about other episodes even within a podcast about one particular episode. There are lots of connections and and things Mm -hmm. to talk about. So please make sure you are happy to hear some spoilers or at least you've watched all the other episodes. Rollo Haynes, owner, proprietor. Hello and welcome to Black Mirror Cracked. Today we have a very special guest from Black Museum. We have the man behind Rollo Haynes himself, Douglas Hodge, Skyping in from New York to speak to us. He's currently rehearsing a play and very busy, but he's kindly given us some of his time because he's a Black Mirror fan and he loves talking about it. So let's talk to Doug about his role. Well, thank you for taking time out of all of that to talk to me. Is it delightful talking about Black Mirror? Well, it's just a work of genius, I think. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And um, I mean, it's interesting we're talking about theatre because, you know, I've spent the lion's share of my career in the theatre and really because the scripts that you get just don't compare. And quite often you go and do a TV and you sort of end up, well, polishing a turd, for want of a better phrase. You, <laughs> you, the script is always you know, never, never as good as in the theatre. And I've been used to doing stuff by Pinter or Miller or, you know, all mm-hmm. sorts of people. And you just sit down on the first day, especially if you do Shakespeare, obviously you've got some masterpiece that you're then trying to excavate. And normally when you do a TV, that just isn't the case. And this, this was as good a script as any I'd ever had put in front of me in any genre. And I thought it was the, the most finished script actually as well. There didn't need to be a single line changed or altered. It was completely envisioned and terrifying and toxic and funny and um, as good as any writing I've ever been given. Before you knew you were going to star in an incredible role, I think, in Black Museum, and it's fun to have a baddie that's slowly revealed to be the baddie, were you a Black Mirror fan? Had you, had you watched it before? So, yes, I'm, I am a fan. I mean, uh, there's some like everybody that I can't watch and some that I haven't finished watching. Cause it depends what sort of time of night it is or what whether you're willing to go down that dark road. So, um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Some of them are challenging and some of them are arresting. And, you know, he's a bit like one of those brilliant, the great, greatest ever stand-up comics who just push you to the point where you go, no, 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 that's just not right. And then he goes a little bit further. But, um, yeah, and there's all sorts of episodes that sort of stick with me and, uh, and that you think about again. I love also the singular format of them, that they each have their own director and their own cast. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a great piece of work, I think. What, what is it like as someone who's watched the show and has found some hard to watch and some that you've had to leave? What's it like when you get that script through the letterbox or, I imagine, email inbox? Well, there's no doubt about it. When I read the script, I was slightly daunted by the toxic nature of the person that I was going to play. I mean, I don't think I've ever played anyone quite so dark or, you know, troubled. I mean, I really don't think I have. I don't think I've played anyone quite as vicious. And the whole sort of race aspects of it were alarming. And to play essentially a white supremacist is... um, you know, you have to think deeply about those things before you begin. And I actually think it's a wonderful script and uh, and fantastic that he gets his comeuppance. But um, there's no doubt that he's the very devil. And, um, yeah, so I, I was – and it was a difficult place to be for five or six weeks. You know, it was, it was just uh, playing somebody who is um, 
massive sleazeball. <laughs> I, I I found his dynamic with Nish, played by Letitia Wright, really concerning. Um, what would he trap her in something? Would she become an exhibit? Was my constant fear through it. He's like a collector. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think he's even looking at her body parts and wondering what he can use later. And I mean, he's he also has that sort of un unempathic, you know, um, psychopathic aspect to him where he isn't really thinking in a very tolerant or, you know, uh, empathic way. So he's sort of unmoved by certain things, um, which the rest of us would be moved by. You know, he's, there's there's an, a sort of level of autism in him to a degree where he doesn't find certain things funny and he doesn't understand why people have got a problem with that. You know, while at the same time being this extraordinary salesman, and a sort of carnival carny, you know. Uh, yes, sales. exactly. Theatrical um, charlatan. Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Is it fun to get your teeth into a character, not only villainous, but gets to tell the story? The stories told by these unreliable narrators is a really theatrical device and a very novelistic device. Is that part of what attracted you to it? Yeah, I mean, I think he literally loves the sound of his own voice. I mean, I've never... I've never done a TV with quite as many words. I mean, he just speaks nonstop, continually. And um, much to my absolute horror, the director, Colin McCarthy, on day one, well, when we first met, said, listen, uh, I, I want to film every single word he says. And when I was sent the script, I think probably, you know, as you see in the actual final program, at least 30% of it is voiceover, you know, because it's flashback and because you're seeing other things. So I knew it was... I was never going to be seen, but he then said he just wanted the choice to play. So I learned the entire script and we filmed every single word. So there is film of me telling the entire story without any flashbacks, you know, just sort of licking my lips and um, enjoying what went on. Um, but I think he's deeply in love with himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you kind of, when you would do, when you're basically monologuing the stories, I suppose, monologuing without the flashbacks, that's very theatrical, I suppose. That's, when you're telling the story to the audience and kind of acting it out by being a very expressive storyteller? Did it feel like that? Yeah, I suppose so. I was worried that when you then put that performance alongside the actual uh, pictures, you know, that you wouldn't need quite as much expression. Do you, do you see what I mean? But yeah. um, And then there was a sort of worry about performance about that. But he's, he's a master, Colin McCarthy, and he sort of chose well. And then we ADR'd some stuff afterwards where it wasn't quite clear. Or I'd just spoken too quickly or whatever, or the accent wasn't right, or, you know. So, um, yeah, it was yeah. – <laughs> I just left it in his hands, really. That's a nice thing to be able to trust someone to do that. In, in terms of the three stories, what did you think of them? Because I – I thought what was done really well is Rollo reveals more of himself through each story and he puts himself in quite a bad light. He doesn't seem to care. <laughs> well, no, I don't think he feels those sort of things that other people feel and I don't think he thinks he is to blame for anything. I think he honestly thinks moving humanity forward and people, if they're that stupid, deserve to have these things happen to them. And also he sort of relishes the way that his, what he would call his sort of, investigations you know examinations go uh, in a sort of really crazed way and to me the three stories the first one about the pain infliction is um just delicious to him you know he just finds it hilarious and then the second one where the you know the woman is trapped inside the monkey 
makes total sense to him. The last story, you know, as an actor with the sort of continual electrocution of, um, of a black, I mean, it's just, it's just incredibly daunting and dark and horrific. And the day we shot it was deeply moving. And I did sort of, I really wondered if we were doing the right thing. And in America, you know, there are things are so PC that you can actually not show certain things to their detriments. I think sometimes that you can, feel like a problem is being, you know, solved or solved. And it actually isn't really properly spoken about. And um, I mean, that's where Charlie Brooker is just fearless and, um, and unflinching and, uh, and, uh, you know, unafraid to go into areas where people may, people just may sweep them under the carpet, you know. Um, and it's very strong politically, I think, in this, in this day and age right now, too. It's it was necessary. It, you're surprised how far he goes, but if you look at the cast of all of his episodes, they're really diverse, certainly in terms of race, and it's just not commented upon at all because it's it's normal, and so that's actually quite a positive thing about the future. Oh, I think he's doing a wonderful job in that, and I think he's blameless in those sort of things, and I think he's fearless in tackling the issues that really should be spoken about in drama and stories. You know, I I, I really do. I mean, of course, if you're such a da- dangerous writer as he is you risk offending no end of people and and treading on the wrong side of the line at all all times but you know that's exactly how it should be and that, that's what it should be and that's the risk he should be taking and um i just i think it's phenomenal work i mean even if you have an episode about bees or whatever it's still <laughs> staggeringly unforgettable that how you know familiar and how present these things that are apparently in the future seem Definitely, because I think there's a lot of emotion in these stories. It's about the human condition first, and kind of how we can then use or destroy tech and let it destroy us afterwards. Uh, was was Charlie Brooker on set quite a lot? Was he kind of quite involved? You no, know, I mean he was there at the first read through, and I complimented him, and he looked very bashful and didn't say another word. And then um, there was a day he came on set, and um, they sat watching the monitors, and. Uh, I don't think he spoke to me at all. And I sort of wondered whether he thought it was okay. And I, and that was it. <laughs> I didn't really, yeah, he just left us entirely to our own. I mean, that's another extraordinary thing to do. You know, you would think he would be sort of white knuckle holding control of everything, but he absolutely isn't. I mean, there's a risk in having a brand new director with a brand new crew every single episode. You know, there's, they could have someone just comes in and thinks, okay, I don't want that sort of brand. I want to do it my way. And, and he just lets them have a free reign. So um, it's a very, it's, you know, that's unusual. There's a lot of showrunners now who think what they're writing is the Bible and, you know, that has to be shot in a certain way. And um, he absolutely didn't have that approach to it at all. I mean, I, I suppose I would have, I just adore him. I don't know what I'd have said anyway, if he'd spoken more about it. I, I think he's so brilliant that, um, you know, I don't know. I just, being Rolo, I suppose, which is more than enough to handle. <laughs> um, in terms, of, there is a little feature at Netflix brought out after the season came out of Charlie Brooker and and I Bojo's walking around Black Museum, sort of saying oh, it's like a trip down memory lane, and there's all these references to other episodes. Did you did you enjoy that aspect of it, thinking it's all one world? I spent every day there for you know probably three weeks, from eight a.m. till eight p.m. Just in the museum, I never really left. Uh, 
So if you knew the other episodes too, which I did, it was pretty extraordinary. I quite often thought, well, we should just not knock this down and charge tickets. And I'm sure it'd be fascinating artifact on its own. You know, it's just, it was in the middle of a film set, but, um, it would be an interesting thing to keep and, uh, and extraordinary as well how they'd kept, uh, you know, things from other series, not just uh, the series we were doing, you know, and that we were all brought out. They'd been kept for this day. So, um, yeah, clever, you know, it's, it's sort of tempting to just work there every day telling stories. Of all the, you know. I remember that. Oh, my God, I remember that because it, it's yeah. been around a while now. I actually went back and watched season one recently and I always thought I'd never liked the national anthem but actually it it is a great episode it's it's very thick of it the, the style which was the kind of main style back in 2011 and then it's really emotional the last scene is the prime minister's head sort of bowing as the wife goes up the stairs and might speak to him anymore and you see this is a marriage that has died as a result he's kind of chosen power over her but he didn't really have a choice and and actually at the end it's a human cost it's their, their relationship yep. is eventually over and that's it's always a human cost it's not about robots and ai no that's you couldn't be you know more right about that and that's of course why it's so i mean in a way it's why shakespeare or anything lasts you know because if it's about jealousy or if it's about love or hatred or ambition or whatever it's about if that's you know common to the human feeling it's immediately recognizable and those things that drive tech you know are all the same feelings and they they're not going to change they've been there you know thousands of years so i think as long as the stories are based you're absolutely right on those sort of you know vicious feelings um then you know it's it doesn't really matter what period you're setting it in what he does is then the, the tech enables us to sort of be able to go even further with certain ideas so that you take a, a simple idea and what if that happened and you extrapolate it into the future and of course you can see it happening easily you know it's just a few steps from where we are now what was the working relationship like with letitia wright did you both kind of set up that we both know what these characters are characters are like and we're going to let it unfold slowly or was it a case of getting to know each other while acting no, I tend to keep myself very much to myself. I, well, I did on this. I mean, certain things I don't. But on this, I thought it was just best to... Uh, I didn't socialize with her. I didn't talk to her much in between scenes. I just sort of stayed, you know, not in character the whole time, but I was just sort of simmering. And, um, yeah, I wasn't ever welcoming or anything to her. I just uh, would play the scene and sort of try and, and surprise her. And... Um, couple of times I think she said to me oh she would run the lines and I said no and she said oh nobody's ever said no before in between scenes uh and I went well I know the lines you know so I was pretty mean to her I think and uh just um I just sort of kept myself to myself it would have been I think she's fantastic and uh and clearly got a wonderful future ahead of her but it would have been nice to have had more time to get to know her but I I just wanted to stay inside this sort of bubble really for the time we were making it and um so no i just played the scenes and sat around on the set and waited for it to come on for the next uh, the next episode sort of thing do you think that helped to keep the tension because ultimately there is a level of thriller in it it's when is he going to uncover his real self what is this this last exhibit is going to be something horrifying so that kind of kept, kept the tension maybe between the two characters yeah i think so Oh, and also, you know, we did have a, a real live museum. It was, you know, 
3D. We were standing in it. It wasn't, uh, you couldn't take the wall away or anything, or then they added the next bit. We walked up to it and we walked inside it and there were all the exhibits and that was it. And there was the big curtain at the back. And um, so in my mind, I always knew I had my sort of prize <laughs> exhibit there. And um, yes, that we shot some of the memories for the, uh, the electrocution, some of those in an old defunct animal laboratory testing place, which was the spookiest, uh, awful location, you know, and some of these derelict places that are left that you can then end up using as sort of hospitals or whatever. But I, all of that had a sort of rather sinister, awful feel to it. Um, so I just really didn't really mix with anyone. Um, and just sort of, even in the hotel, I think Aldis was there and a few of the others actors were all around. But I was always sort of just on my own, really, which I thought was best for the whole thing, you know. Yeah, keeping if if Rollo then betrays too much sympathy for other characters, then that's not what he is as a character. What, what did you think of that three story structure? Because it's used in White Christmas and I think it's used really well in both episodes that kind of reflect on each other. And with John Hamm's character, Matt Trent, we really trust him all along. So it's really surprising when he betrays our trust and he's actually horrifying and he ends up an offend- a sex offender that's blocked for life from everyone. Is, is, that, is that an episode you watched and kind of had ideas about? I thought more of the three stories really, to me it sort of speaks of, I don't know, Hitchcock and, um, you know, these master storytellers who are, who actually introduce things in that sort of carny way, you know, in um, fairground, showman-y, sort of slightly tacky, you know, storytelling way in Tales from the Crypt, obviously, Twilight Zone. You know, they all have this sort of aspect of this week, I'm going to tell you about this. And, you know, it's kind of <laughs> that, that aspect to it is – you know, the grand guignol, the sort of gothic elements to it, were all there in that uh, story. And um, I love, too, the idea that you could slip back to him being a bit younger and more successful and not quite so sweaty and not, not <laughs> quite, you know, just in a sort of better version of what he was wearing now. I think the costumes were clever that uh, we, we ended up with a sort of half-baked version of what he used to wear when he had the job. Um, and I thought that... You know, the museum itself, which we shot out in Spain, was pretty fantastic. Um, it's funny because it was in exactly the same location as I had uh, shot Penny Dreadful about the year before, almost exactly the same month. And that time it was uh, sort of, it was a railway station with a, you know, and I was on a horse uh, with one arm. It was quite strange to go so where back. where in Spain was that? Almeria, it's called. Uh, okay, so like the kind of Moorish yeah it is yeah. it's a famous it's where all the spaghetti westerns were shot it's quite an incredible location if you're a film buff you know i mean every i mean all of raiders of the lost ark and those films were shot there lawrence of arabia was shot there all of the you know the good the bad and the ugly and you can actually go on the sets of most of those um and basically it looks like the american desert and uh, it's much cheaper to film there. <laughs> and they have all the sets and the facilities. And um, several times I've been there now. But, it, yeah, it's at the sort of um, northern Spain, the, at the bottom of Spain, you know, just above Morocco, yeah. Ah, I, I think what's really nice about it is that it does kind of gra- – it grounds our present as, like, the past of the story. And it does it with the visuals really well and with, like, Rollo's changing outfits and – 
and all of that, not just the technology. What what do you think of someone whose job it was to find guinea pigs? Do you think actually he moves humanity forward or is it all cancelled out by his lack of care for the people who become collateral damage? Well, I do. Th- yeah, I think he's evil. I think he's essentially unfeeling. And therefore, he it, it he fails to remember that people have feelings and that there are sort of emotional implications to things. He just keeps pressing forward on what he does, and and also is sort of selling them, you know, as well as um, as as being interested in their sort of application. He's just sort of selling them, and then he's actually you know loses his job because uh, <laughs> because he's put enough. Um, feelings into his monkey but um yeah i don't think he's a force for good (laughs) no you have to have the empathy with the technologies kind of the overall message from that one yes i suppose that's true yeah yeah and there are as always in all his stories you know this idea of you know a madame two swords where people are actually electrocuted where people sort of keep a tamagotchi version of that pain for everlasting they're sort of very twisted uh, projections of what we're already doing in all sorts of places you know um and i like the way as well that the audiences gradually peter out the people who come to the museum are sort of off by it and then they're more and more weirdos and supremacists and uh you know just just dark evil people what do you think the future holds for nish with her mum in her head i think in the end to have your mother in your head would drive anyone insane oh, yes <laughs> bless her it's for a great reason but the moment um carrie was put into jack's head my first reaction was he can never have another girlfriend ever no exactly yeah to have your mother yeah your mother's in your head your ex is in your head so it yeah. does drive people insane yeah, she has now got the delete button, of course, and uh, can turn her off. But uh, yes, that's a, another moral conundrum. But I, I don't know. I love my mother dearly, but I'm yes, I don't. I wouldn't want to have her in the room all the time, <laughs> commenting on everything I'm doing, and a lot of the things. Certainly. But um, yeah, I think the, the idea is that she carries her mother with her wherever she goes, as we all do, even after she's dead. And you know, she makes puts things right for her in her own life in a sort of metaphorical sense it's interesting that the tech feels like something dreamt up by someone in the throes of grief because if someone is that low they want to keep that person with them forever but actually some of the worst decisions as we see with jack some of the worst decisions are made when you're in that emotional state a really intense emotional state and a lot of technology tends towards documenting everything and keeping everything you know right from the first camera onwards the 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 in, impulse to, you know, record what you're eating, to photograph, to insta everything, to, you know, to document your life, to capture it and to keep it. I mean, who on earth has enough hours to go back and look at what you've got? But to have it, you know, it is a, it is a modern impulse. Definitely there's a sort of new generation who are, who are documenting every single thing they do, uh, you know, collecting it and keeping it and collating it in the way that I suppose people used to have scrapbooks. But this is uh, a different impulse, I think. And, and, and who's to say whether that's right or wrong? You know, I'm of a generation where I, I would, I'd say, oh, I just want to experience it as it comes at me. I don't want to photograph it as it's happening. But that is a newer impulse, I think. And, it's, and I think it's been led from Japan and places like that. And I think technology is, is you know, quick to record all those things and to, um, 
to follow that sort of yeah, that, that trend. And also with all the stuff that's being recorded, like say say you got Twitter when you were twelve. I'm so glad I didn't have it back then. The things people have said in their in their youth, which may or may not reflect them now, has had real world consequences. Like an MP in Sheffield, Jared O'Meara, lost yeah you know, faith of his constituents. And should everything be recorded from your earlier life and be available as well? Well, they're gone. You know, when they're now from now on, really, any president who becomes a president or a prime minister, we will be able to read every email they ever sent since they were six. You know, we will, they won't be deleted. Things, you know, are in the ether and are, we can get them back. So, you know, a lot of Black Mirror looks at that. You know, even the one about, you know, having an argument with your lover and then saying, I said that and you say you didn't say that. And then we play. I mean, if you look at someone like Harold Pinter, whose work I've done, he tends to think that the nature of memory is that you know, you you sort of improve from what you have or you change what you have emotionally. That what actually happened doesn't become as significantly true as what you imagined happened. So that, you know, you have an uh, your first memory and, and don't forget that your first memory, the next memory after that is only a memory of that memory. It's never the actual memory of the thing that happened. So what, if you can remember what happened to you at three and you in your mind document that, when you next remember it, you're remembering the memory of that documentation. And that, of course, changes as you wish it to change throughout your life. And um, so we're sort of moving against that naturalistic impulse in some ways, I think. When um just for all I called you, I, I looked back at your IMDb and obviously it's so, so many pinter plays that you've been in. But getting onto the memory and the recording of it, just crap's last tape comes to mind. Beckett was, actually Pinter performed it at the World yeah. Cup, saw him do it. But they were great friends and they had a very similar sort of take on things. And plays like Betrayal and Old Times are all about memory too. I mean, yeah, Crap's last tape is, you know, the very beginning of that technology was recording everything he says and keeping cassettes of um, yeah. and, you know, all those things and gradually, you know, boxes upon boxes of cassettes of his life. Um, you know, interesting as a as a forerunner of, of how we are now, you know, with um, well, now we don't even choose it this morning, I think. Facebook sent me you know, various pictures from five years ago or whatever that they've decided to keep and put together for me in great cloud. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting. He is a proto Black Mirror thing there, and also the memory he goes back to is of a lost love. Always he goes back to that one and he sees it in different ways. It always goes back yes. to the most emotional point in your life. Yeah, Old Times too by Pinter is um, three people really whose memory of a specific thing is utterly different. And you don't really know who's telling the truth, you know. And, of course, they are all telling the truth from their perspective. Uh, was it satisfying for you to watch back? Uh, I would never go that far, no. I was. <laughs> um, I sort of watched it, you know, from behind the sofa. I don't like watching myself. He's a pretty, you know, I wanted him to be a sort of sleazeball, slightly overweight, sweaty, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's not how I so want to see It's hard to see yourself. You look at yourself as well, and you're like, nah, I was doing it for the part. Yeah. Well, I tend to play a lot of those kind of people, but um, yeah, so there must be something about me. But anyway, I yeah, I I I just think it's wonderful writing, and um, it's a great series to be involved in. It was a great you know episode to do, I think, and nice that it was the finale, and that it had all those little strings, you know, that tied things together. It's it's such a great episode, and I think it has a sense of the series as actually being 
quite important. It, it It's referred to all the time. Part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I knew there was an audience there, but people just refer to it something being a bit Black Mirror all the time. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. there's no greater compliment than that, of course. Yeah. It's not just the tech and it's not just the predictions that have come true. It's because people feel something about it. They, well, and there's no doubt about it. It's, you know, it's very prescient. I mean, um, there are moments in your day when you go, oh, my God, that's sort of happening now. When I just seen that episode about in the future, that's actually happening. You know, this is sort of black mirror while we're living in right now. You know, that that happens a lot. And, um, and things that he's predicted have already since the first series, you know, happened. So, yeah, it does. It's nice that it's become a euphemism for an actual feeling. I mean, it's great. What a piece of work. It's just insane. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. You sound super busy, but it's so much. It's so delightful to talk about this show. Yes, great. No worries. Thank you very much. So that was Douglas Hodge talking to us about his role as Rollo Haynes in Black Museum, the finale of season four of Black Mirror. I think we can agree that his performance was incredible and kind of creepy and a bit like a carny and all the things he said. And that was exactly the person you needed to pull together all these criminological artefacts. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode of Black Mirror Cracked, please rate, review, subscribe, click all the stars on iTunes, say super nice things, tweet out the link, tell your friends, your neighbours, and anyone with Netflix or ears to listen to this show. And uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.